0: is December now isn't it yeah because the last podcast came out on the 29th of November so it's legit December and where I'm at right now is winter winter didn't just come winter arrived it was uh, all over in the matter of a couple of days where we started there was no snow and then boom looking outside my window it is totally snow-covered right now. So, welcome from the frozen north. (laughs) Anyway, welcome to History Pop, where we examine the intersection of pop culture and history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. I'm your host, Courtney, and today I'm really excited to get to talk a bit more about the, uh, last four of Henry VIII's Queens as we build up to talking about the musical Six. So, uh, Today we're going to be looking at the lives of uh, his final four queens, because honestly, the first two queens I should have expected took me forever to get through. Unsurprisingly, because, well, Catherine of Aragon's tenure as queen was uh, just as long, if not a little bit longer, than the other four queens, five queens, I can do math. The other five queens combined. So... (laughs) And it made sense to do Catherine Aragon and Anne Boleyn because they overlapped quite a bit. Uh, But no, today we're going to be starting off with talking about Jane Seymour, moving on to Anne of Cleves, then Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr to talk about Six the Musical in our next podcast. So remember, there are no spoilers in history, but there will be in this podcast. Stay tuned. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. And tonight, we are... Welcome back. Is it any wonder that I love that intro or that I honestly am a really big fan of this musical? So I got to see it once uh, last week and what's really exciting is I'm going to get to see it again this week uh, so that I'm going to be able to come into talking about the pod, not the podcast, the musical itself in our next podcast really coming from it fresh and having the chance to actually not see it but once but twice to come back with a little bit more in terms of observations. But one of the things that I feel like I need to kind of apologize To six about was uh you know i talked a little bit about how they uh still fall victim to the same tropes of looking at henry the eighth's wives as all just a succession of wives and so they do their best to kind of struggle against it and you can tell that from the soundtrack but it's even more prevalent when you go to see the musical they actually have uh bits of talking in between the songs otherwise it would just be a concert which is great and fine and wonderful but not necessarily what you go to a theater for um but they take a lot of time to actually talk about and actually poke fun at the fact that Uh, Usually they're just presented as, you know, boom, 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 bunches of different wives in order, and they talk a lot about how, you know, women aren't numbers, and they, as much as they've been pitted against each other in history, for the most part, they really weren't in real life, except for Anne Boleyn, but there's other things I can talk about there, um, They do a good job of showing that as much as history has treated these queens, these women, in this way historically, that doesn't need to be how we continue to look at these queens. And so one of the things that I love about what Six does is that it, I love it and I am frustrated by it as well, is the fact that they kind of talk about how, you know, as much as we can't change how their lives ended and how many of their lives ended tragically and much of their lives were uh, tragic as well. They come up with a happy ever after song at the end of the show that, you know, is a, you know, what if a counterfactual history of what would have happened had they not really gotten married to Henry and how they would have contributed to the world in their own way. And I like that. As much as I don't necessarily agree with the endings that they gave each of the queens, and it makes sense too because they're talking a lot about music because it's a musical. I do think that looking at each of these women on their own feet, on their own merits, is incredibly important. That's one of the things that I try to do as a historian is to look at these women not just in terms of their relationship to other men which is how women have been looked at historically for a very 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 long time i mean you look at uh even women not even that far back from our own time where they you know a lot of women when they get married they take on their husband's name so if you were a woman named elizabeth i don't know um Elizabeth Queen. Let's just go with that. Your maiden name is Queen. You get married to uh, William Livingston, then you become Mrs. William Livingston. And that's not that far removed from our current time frame. And in a lot of ways, women's identities are subsumed throughout history into their husband's families or their husband's identities. And that makes it incredibly hard to look at these women as individuals, but that just means we just have to work that much harder because they deserve it just as much as the men do. (laughs) Um, And so that's one of the things that Six does, and at least addresses, which I appreciate, is the fact that these women were individual people on their own uh, in their own rights. And so so one of the things that Six does actually pretty well is talking about these women in their own rights, and I really do appreciate that. We're moving on now to talking about Jane Seymour, uh, as you'll hear in the clip, the one he truly loved. The only one he truly loved rude uh, and you'll hear that done much better here in just a second and we'll talk a little bit about more about what makes jane an individual and what made her her as much as we can so stay tuned D-Dine. jane seymour the only one he truly loved rude when my son was newly born i died but i'm not what i seem or am i stick around and you'll suddenly see more so confession alert here up until, honestly, watching Six, which is a weird thing for a historian to be able to say, Jane Seymour was, and in some ways is still, is the queen of Henry VIII's wives, who I was the least interested in, in terms of understanding her as an individual. I just, you know, I'm I tend to be drawn more towards the feistier women, the... Uh, stronger, quote-unquote, women, and Jane definitely never comes across as that. I mean, her motto was born to, not born, (laughs) bound to obey and serve, which perfectly encapsulates what was expected of a Tudor woman. And so thinking about her and how, you know, well-behaved women rarely make history, and so thinking about Jane, caused me to think a lot about how, in my own historical research, I've been focusing on those powerful, feisty, fiercely intelligent women, instead of also incorporating the women who may not necessarily have been as feisty, or the women who may not necessarily have uh, made as big of a splash, but are still important in the course of history. And Jane is one of those women, and I do think that there's probably more to her than meets the eye, because there's not honestly a whole lot of sources that come from Jane herself, and so it really is impossible to know just how much of a hand she had in her rise to power, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But I want to work harder now to kind of give attention to those women as well, the, the quieter women, the women who are working behind the scenes, not just the ones who are in the front being the loudest. And I really credit with going to Six and seeing how they treated Jane to, that challenged me to really rethink how I've been doing history and how I want to do history. And so I really appreciate that. So anyway, uh, as we talked about before with Anne Boleyn, girls really weren't necessarily as valued as much as boys and that's not necessarily they weren't valued as much as boys and we see that with the fact that we don't know when jane was actually born we historians dated it probably around 1508 um and she was one of many siblings Uh, now just like anne boleyn she was not a commoner she wasn't royal but she wasn't a commoner, and uh, and uh, so she's related to the old English aristocracy, to the Howards especially, um, and you know through her mother, uh, her mother's cousins uh, Elizabeth and Edmund Howard. She then also is related to uh, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, two of Henry's other queens. She, like I said, she comes from a lot of siblings. Uh, the two that really come to prominence. Uh, especially later on, uh, after her marriage and then after her death, are her two brothers, Edward and Thomas. Uh, She wasn't as educated as Catherine of Aragon or Anne Boleyn, but at the same time, not a lot of women were. Uh, They were highly unusual in the amount of education that they enjoyed and were able to obtain for themselves. Uh, Jane was much more traditionally educated in what was expected of a... Uh, noble woman in England at the time, so she could read and write, and we do have evidence of her signature on things, etc., etc. Um, but she was taught in how to manage a household. She was, so she knew how to run the books. She knew how to be a leader and delegate and do all of those things, which is incredibly important to running a household, especially on the Royal stage, which she was very adept at. She, she was also very good at embroidery and sewing and, uh, her contemporaries never thought of her as dumb. They actually have, uh, records talking about how she was of above average intelligence. She, her personality is something that we don't know, uh, when We know that she was very good at showing a meek and gentle and humble face to the world. But then we also have uh, contemporaries talking about how she was inclined to be proud and haughty. Uh, And so we have these two very contradictory images of who Jane was. And so that's another reason why we don't really know who she was just like Anne Boleyn. Was she a schemer? Was she a pawn uh, used by other people, especially by her brothers? We don't know. And so that's one of the things too, that I really want to think about as we're going forward is making sure that we can give back as much agency to these women. And agency basically just means the ability to make your own choices and to affect change in your life. And uh, agency can be kind of synonymous with power, just depending on how you define, uh, how you demonstrate power. And so thinking about that, you know, I want to be able to say that Jane probably had a hand in her uh, rise to power. She was, uh, at court by probably around the late 1520s, and she served in the household of Catherine of Aragon, which is probably how she came to, uh, be seen by Henry VIII, but obviously he was embroiled in his relationship with Anne Boleyn, and and so nothing really came of their interactions until much later. Um, Eventually, of course, Catherine of Aragon is exiled from court. Anne Boleyn reigns triumphantly, is married, has Elizabeth, and then is executed. So after Anne's execution, then honestly, the next day, (laughs) not even like the next month or the next weeks, the next day, Henry VIII announces his engagement to Jane Seymour. So we know that something had been going on behind the scenes, uh, and actually before Anne Boleyn's death and her uh, her trial and things like that. And there actually are stories that are unsubstantiated, but they've come down to uh, modern day as truth, simply because of the fact they've been told over and over and over again. And there's a lot of that that goes on in history. Uh, there's a story that... Um, Henry VIII had given Jane Seymour a a necklace and Anne Boleyn knew it when she saw it and was incredibly jealous and so she ripped it off of uh, Jane's neck and actually ended up uh, making her hand bleed and Jane's neck bleed with the force that she pulled it off. And so we have the story of that necklace. We also have a story that uh, she caused Anne Boleyn's miscarriage, uh, the one that happened in the end of January after Catherine of Aragon had died, because Anne had come across Henry uh, with Jane on his lap and that the shock of it just gave her a miscarriage, which modern medical science is like, that's not really how that works. But especially in this time period, there was a lot about, uh, the feminine body as well as reproduction in general that people did not understand, or at least the understandings that they had at the time do not mesh with what we know now. That's the beauty thing, beautiful thing about science. And I'm just pouring some tea, don't mind me. Um... And actually, to have a little bit of a digression in terms of uh, procreation, it was thought at the time that uh, the woman was basically literally just this empty vessel that the uh, man would put his seed into, like literally as a seed, like a plant seed. And it would be planted in the woman, and then she would just incubate it, uh, that she had nothing to do with it other than that. And uh, it was also thought that if a woman... uh, did not orgasm, then uh, she wouldn't conceive that conception only came from a woman's pleasure. And so there was a lot of misconceptions that they didn't know they had about the uh, female body and reproduction in general. And so it was thought that the shock of seeing Jane on Henry's lap (gasps) sent her into a tizzy and she miscarried, which totes did not happen that way. She did miscarry, but it most likely wasn't from seeing Jane on Henry's lap. but we do know that Henry sent her a lot of presents and she was able to see from how Henry reacted to Anne, especially uh, how she wanted to craft her response. Now, I want to give her more agency and more power here than has been traditionally done. Some people say that she was just a schemer, and that she was completely and utterly in charge and knew exactly what she was doing and wanted Anne Boleyn out of the way so that she could be queen, because Anne had proven that you could unseat a queen, at least with Henry VIII. And then there's another camp that says basically, no, the the image that she portrayed of being the meek, the gentle, the mild, the bound to obey and serve was actually who she was. And she was just manipulated by her much more intelligent and ambitious brothers. I'm kind of in the middle. I think that she wasn't dumb. And I think that partly she, didn't really like Anne and didn't agree with her and her religious sentiments but we don't know exactly what Jane's religious uh, affiliations were. Uh, That's what I love about like looking at uh, scholarly work versus wikipedia because wikipedia is like she was totes catholic and then it doesn't really give you an explanation for it but if you dig a little bit deeper into it we know that uh, she Luther was told, as in like Martin Luther, as in of the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Church, which also didn't exactly happen the way it's been told, uh, was told that she was an enemy of the Reformed faith. And so then logic would dictate that she probably was perceived as being a Catholic. And that she also uh, was very close to Mary, the Princess Mary, and supported her, which also leads more to a Catholic uh, faith, probably for Jane. But at the same time, we don't know that she patronized any clerks of um, any of the faiths that were going around in England at the time. So we really don't know for sure. So it's probable that she uh, was more of a Catholic faith and another so and that she was loyal to Mary and to Catherine of Aragon. Uh, but we don't know for sure. It's possible that she wanted to unseat Anne Boleyn for Mary and for Catherine and for the love that she bore them. Or because she also just realized, hey, I could be queen. I'm pretty enough. The king uh, obviously has, I've caught his eye. And so we can do this. And so I don't know the reasons why. No one knows the reasons why. And if they tell you I know the reason why, and then they don't really know. They're just blustering. (laughs) People will think they know, and a good historian will be able to tell you, well, I think this because of this, this, and this documentary evidence. But there's always a question, because we can't ever know what's in someone else's head and heart, even if they write it down, because do we ourselves write everything down exactly the way they are in our own minds? Do we in and of ourselves, in the modern day, know exactly why we do the things we do. Sometimes we do, but sometimes we don't. And we can never really know what's going on behind the eyes of someone else. And having them be in another time period, in another country, makes it even more difficult to be able to understand where they're coming from. And so we don't really know why Jane did the things that she did. All we know is that she did them. And so um, after moving back into the uh, relationship, budding relationship with Henry, he'd started sending her gifts. Lots and lots of gifts worth lots and lots of money. And Jane, either because she was coached or because she knew to do it this way and just felt like it, or she actually genuinely believed what she said back, refused the gifts. Um, We have here from her Oxford Dictionary of National Biography that... Henry sent great presents to Jane, but he later reported that she refused a purse of money and a letter sent by him. On the 1st of April, he recorded that Jane had fallen to her knees, begging a messenger to tell Henry, quote, to consider that she was a well-born damsel, the daughter of good and honorable parents, without blame or reproach of any kind. There was no treasure in this world that she valued as much as her honor, and on no account would she lose it, even if she were to die a thousand deaths." that if the king wished to make her a present of money she requested it to, she requested him to reserve it for such a time as god would be pleased to send her some advantageous marriage so not too long afterward we do have Anne being executed and we have him free then to marry Jane which he does very quickly so after they're married she jumps into trying to be a queen as she understood what a role a queen was supposed to play. She um, actually does get pregnant actually fairly quickly. Uh, There were plans actually to have her have a coronation just like Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn had but those weren't able to happen because it was in the summer and in London in the summer there's plague and so plans were postponed and then she became pregnant and so that was to Henry's great joy and her great joy as well. Um, one of the things that happened, especially in the early modern period is after a woman becomes pregnant, you can tell she's pregnant because she starts having cravings. And so that was a subtle signal that women gave to be able to show that they were pregnant. And so she started craving quail and cucumber, which Henry and then actually the princess Mary got for her. Um, she also tried to do perform intercessions which is where you beg the king for mercy for someone else and uh they were not very successful but she did try and so her pregnancy was a very easy pregnancy and uh which led to a very very difficult birth uh it actually took two days and three nights Uh, she did survive the birth um, she actually was around to, uh, she wasn't actually at the ceremony because that's just how, um, tradition went, but, uh, and so she was able to be around for her son's baptism, which was wonderful for her, and then she died shortly thereafter. Now, one of the things that, uh, Henry made sure of was making a big show of grief. Like, he wore black for a, actually a pretty decently long time for a king, uh, to be in mourning and he worked to build a good uh tomb for her and he uh when he died requested to be buried next to her she was the only wife that he was buried next to because well she gave him the son he wanted and basically with henry she lived long enough to give him what he wanted but then promptly died before she disappointed him and because that just seems to be how things went with Henry. And so with that death, that cemented then her legacy as Henry's perfect wife, which definitely was not the case with his next three wives. And so we'll move on next to Anna of Cleves. Ich bin Anna of Cleves. Yeah. When he saw my portrait, he was like, Yeah. But I didn't look as good as I did in my pic. Funny how we all discussed that but never Henry's little Whenever I hear that clip of Anne of Cleves talking about how she didn't look as good as she did in her pick, I always want to tell her, yes, yes you did. So the whole thing, just overview of Anne of Cleves. Basically, she was born in Northwest Germany, one of the Duchies, Cleves. Uh, she was born in fifteen fifteen. And uh, Cleves, even though it is a small duchy in the Holy Roman Empire, it was well-situated to be economically and militarily important, which is one of the reasons why Henry sought, uh, to Cleves to find a bride. Also because he was looking for a Protestant bride, um, and Cleves at that particular point in time was a Lutheran province. But Now, of course, this wasn't necessarily accepted in the Holy Roman Empire as the Holy Roman Emperor, Carlos V, uh, the nephew of Catherine of Aragon, uh, was very much Catholic. And, you know, when you think of Holy Roman Emperor, uh, he actually typically, especially, is crowned by the Pope. And so with the Pope getting the one to crown you, you're probably going to be Catholic, most likely. Um, With the Peace of Augsburg, which comes about in 1555, so a few years after all of this is happening, we have a legal, uh, legalized separation of faiths in the Holy Roman Empire. Basically, if your uh, Duke was a Lutheran, then your Duchy was Lutheran. If your Duke was a Catholic, then your Duchy was Catholic. Calvinism totes not a thing. Well, it was a thing, but it wasn't legal yet. It was basically either just Lutheran or Catholic up until a little bit later uh, with the Peace of Westphalia. But anyway, so at this point in time, it's a, uh, Cleves is a Lutheran duchy. And as much as some people try to make it out to be that it was this cultural backwater, it really wasn't. Yes, Anne of Cleves also was not educated to the same standard as was Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, but hardly any women were, especially non-royal women. And so Anne Boleyn is very much an exception to the rule when it comes to education of women at that point in time. But Anne, Anna, was was educated well in terms of being able to run a household, just like Jane was. She also did needlework. Uh, she liked music. She didn't really perform music, but she had music performed for her. And so we have a lot of painters. We have a lot of musicians. We have a lot of artists coming through Cleves. And so Henry sought out to find the perfect bride, and there were a lot of women who, uh, you know, fit the bill. Um, And actually one of the things that I found was uh, Marie de Guise, actually. He was looking to marry her. She was a possible contender. Marie de Guise eventually married uh, James V of Scotland and was mother of Mary, Queen of Scots. And uh, when asked... Uh, why he wanted to marry her. He said that he needed a big woman. He'd heard that she was big in person, uh, you know, because, you know, big women breed good sons. And Marie apparently responded with, I may be big in person, but I have a little neck. <laughs> and, uh, and Christina of Denmark was another one of uh, the possible brides for Henry VIII, because, of course, they didn't really get that much of a choice in it. It was just their... Husbands, not their husbands, <laughs> if they were married, then they couldn't marry Henry VIII. Well, <laughs> uh, but their fathers, their brothers, any other male men, people who were in charge of her at the time, uh, so they didn't get to have a lot of choice in the matter. But Christina of Denmark was another one of those who was painted by Holbein, just like Anna of Cleves, uh, who was a possible bride for Henry VIII. And I love it because she's so clever. Uh, She also says, too, that she wasn't really pleased with the idea of becoming Henry VIII's wife, but she said, if I had two heads, I would happily put one at the disposal of the King of England. So people across Europe were wary of sending their daughters to England after this. And... So Holbein's, uh, who was Henry VIII's court painter, uh, was sent out to all these different courts to paint these possible brides for Henry. And now Holbein is a master. I I have much respect for his paintings. They are beautiful and wonderful. And honestly, you should look up Hans Holbein the Younger to actually see more about him. There's actually a quote uh, that comes out in the Tudors series where Holbein is uh, having some fun with married women of Henry's court and husbands are coming to Henry to complain and Henry says something to the effect of I can raise up 20 dukes in a day. God made one Holbein. So Holbein is that talented and he is that well-esteemed by Henry VIII. So he sends him out to the various courts to paint all of these young ladies and send the portraits back so that Henry gets to choose which queen, which woman he wants as his next queen. And so he does choose from the basis of these portraits Anna of Cleves, which uh, the portrait was sworn by ambassadors who had met her to be a faithful representation of what she actually looked like. So Anne of Cleves is married, she is shipped off to England, and as is apparently, I read somewhere that someone said that this was tradition, I'm like really? Probably just because Henry's kind of a weirdo, Um, instead of meeting her formally, Henry goes in disguise to meet her after she just lands in England and is resting and trying to figure out what she's doing. She also doesn't speak English yet. She spoke French and German, and so she wasn't dumb, but Henry walks into her room dressed up in disguise, and she has no idea who this guy is, and so she doesn't treat him with the respect she would treat the king. Daw, and he gets his little feelings hurt, runs away, comes back in his king clothes, and of course she treats him wonderfully because she knows who he is. And so I think that that was probably the really the biggest thing that threw off the relationship from the beginning was he had super unrealistic expectations of her to be able to instantly know who he was because you know he's the king; it comes through no matter what he does. And you know, one of his previous wives, Catherine of Aragon was very good at knowing whenever Henry was dressed up. I think we talked a little bit about the Robin Hood incident where he comes dressed into her chambers as Robin Hood and he has a whole bunch of his friends as the Merry Men. And so she goes along and pretends oh no, what am I going to do? Robin Hood and his Merry Men are in here. I wish the King were here. And so she knew how to play to his ego. And I'm sure Anne, Anna, would have done a very good job of that as well, but she also didn't know him for years before he pulled this stunt. And so that hurt his widow feelings And I don't think he ever forgave her for that, Uh, but they were still wed. And he very quickly said that, well, you know what? I don't think that she's a maid. I don't think she's a virgin because uh, her breasts are too full and her belly is too saggy. And, you know, he, of course, knew virgins. (sighs) And so he said that she'd obviously been married before and she was someone else's wife. And so she's not mine and I don't want her anymore. Take her back. (laughs) and that's basically what ended up happening she didn't go back to cleves but he offered her the chance to have an annulment and if she took it then she would be the king's most beloved sister uh, for as long as she stayed in england and she took the deal she was only queen for about six months or so before the marriage was annulled And the entire time, she was working really hard, actually, to be a good queen. She was working on learning English. She was learning uh, the English court uh, entertainments and traditions so that she could involve herself and do the things that she knew she needed to do. Uh, And actually, Catherine Howard, uh, the next queen, was one of her maids. And that's also probably one of the reasons why Henry was like, Yeah, no, I don't want this one. I want the other one. The other one's cuter. And... So Anne of Cleves then was pushed off to the side and she spent the rest of her life just like they show in 6. And you can actually get a bit of that from her song, Get Down, where she has all of these castles. She has all of these manors. She is in charge of her own life and she doesn't have a rich man to tell her what to do with it. And so that's one of the things that I love most about Anne of Cleves is that uh, she has her party castle. And she does what she wants for the rest of her life. She ends up, uh, after Henry's death, she uh, isn't taken care of as well in terms of uh, Edward, his son's reign. But she uh, is actually fairly well taken care of in the reign of Mary. Uh, She actually does survive through most of uh, Mary's reign until 1557. She dies when she's about 41 or 42. And she actually was present in part of the coronation ceremonies for uh, Mary when she has her coronation in 1553. So she had a really great relationship with all of her stepchildren. She didn't get a chance to really do anything to pull them into the succession, uh, but she did enjoy their presence and she had lasting relationships with both Mary and Elizabeth. And for as long as she could, Edward, although he didn't really survive for very long, but she just ended up doing her thing and uh being a popular presence at court uh and she actually got along very well with Catherine Howard and I'm not sure how well she got along with Katherine Parr and another oh I have another page here I actually did something a little bit different with this and wrote everything down instead of typing it up oh yeah cool Amy hey, I basically have already talked about all of this stuff with her <laughs> uh but anyway so she lives out her life as the king's beloved sister and then once she's the king's beloved aunt things kind of go worse for her but then when she's the queen's beloved aunt again with the next queen uh things go a lot better for her and she does her own thing and she so throughout the course of her time in England she made herself a beloved presence at court she uh, got along very well with each of her stepchildren and spent the rest of her life in England and I do enjoy actually one of the things that she talked about in her song uh, that she is not an English flower she's a Schnitzel. and I really enjoyed that because she as much as seeing she ingratiated herself into the court at in England she was always very German she was herself and we appreciate that about Anna of Cleves so Moving on then to the woman who uh, partially caused the annulment. Uh, also, one more thing about the whole portrait thing. It's obvious when you're looking at the evidence that it was more of a political reason why Henry, and also his personal little feeling being hurt, why the marriage with Anna was annulled. And we know that because we have the execution of Thomas Cromwell, one of Henry's most able ministers because he failed with this marriage. And ew, and eventually by the time we have the annulment, the uh, alliance with Cleves isn't really as necessary anymore. And so Henry has Thomas Cromwell, who was the one who engineered the marriage, executed. And Holbein, the person who painted the portrait, was never punished and continued to be a presence at Henry's court for years to come. So yeah, if the portrait did not look like her, Henry would not have continued to employ and patronize Hans Holbein the Younger. So obviously then her portrait or how she looked in the portrait had nothing to do with the reasons why the marriage was annulled. So moving on to the Rose Without a Thorn, Catherine Howard. Crick up your ears on the Catherine who lost her head, head for my promiscuity outside of wed. Lock up your husband's, lock up your son's key, Howard is here and the fun's begun. So once again, with Catherine Howard, we have the whole, well, we have no idea when she was actually born. We have a, a range of years uh, from like 1523 to 1528 no one is really sure when she was actually born. Um, usually we kind of go with the younger end of things. Oh, know, it was in 15, it was uh, like 1518 to 1525 or so. So I'm going to go with smack in the middle and say, we'll say 1523 just for funsies. Um, so Catherine Howard was one of many brood, so many children. Um, her mom had lots of kids, uh, at least five from both of her marriages and died when Kate was young. Uh, so she... Was brought up by her dad's stepmom. So we have a lot of oddly today blended families at this particular time frame. And so, yeah, you could easily inherit children from marriages that had nothing to do with you. And so, uh, Agnes Tilney, the Duchess of Norfolk, uh, took over as her guardian after her mom died and then after her dad died. Uh, so the Duchess made sure that she had some education. She was probably the least educated out of all of Henry VIII's wives. Uh, but she was literate. She was able to read. She was able to write. She was able to sew. And she knew how to perform musical uh, instruments and, and songs and things like that. She, uh, actually, we do know that she had a strong relationship with her music teacher. And Kate Howard's history is pretty, probably going to be the most difficult to talk about, especially in a post Me Too uh, America. So Catherine's a young teen when the sexual abuse starts. She is probably about 12, 13, 14. Like once again, we don't know how old she was, but she was probably on the younger end of the spectrum that we have for the dates. And it was started by her music teacher, Henry Mannix. Uh, he took advantage of her and her vulnerability and she did nothing really as far as we know to resist but we don't know if she could have resisted she probably couldn't have this was a person in a place of authority over her she was very young he was a fully fledged adult and so that makes it a lot more difficult to be able to resist And so that's not her responsibility. She was supposed to be protected by not only her music teacher, who was supposed to not take advantage of her, but also her step-grandmother, who was the one who was in charge of keeping her safe and getting her educated and taking care of her. And so she was failed by the adults who were left in her life. She was abused by Henry Mannix. Now, apparently, according to sources that we know, that as much as he did abuse her, she, uh, it stopped short of intercourse. So she was still technically a virgin afterward, which was enough to keep her going in life. Um, And she was actually the one who was blamed for all of this after the Dowager Duchess found out she actually hit young Kate uh, you know, blaming her and punishing her for this, even though it obviously was not her fault. And later, when Kate was still a teen, she was targeted by Francis Durham, who was secretary working for the Duchess. Um, he told her that they were married, and so then he took advantage of her like Mannix did. He actually, with one of his friends, would sneak into her bedroom at night, and his friend would know his quote unquote wife biblically, just like Francis Durham knew Catherine biblically. And, and this continued on for several months until Mannix was jealous <laughs> and found out about it and wrote an anonymous letter to the Duchess saying, "'This is what's going on behind closed doors in the chambers of your maids at night. So you probably should keep a better eye on it or and slash or let me be in there and do this. No, I just added that part in. But he did write an anonymous letter telling the Duchess what was going on. And so once she knew, then instead of, you know, firing Durham, uh, he actually did get sent off to Ireland. But uh, and instead of trying to protect Catherine further, she sends her away to court. Why? Why would you do that? But apparently, so she gets sent away to court to be... Um, a maid of honor for Anna of Cleves, and so she's in attendance upon Anna of Cleves right when she arrives in England, and this is probably when she first caught Henry's eye. Uh, She wasn't known to be, at least from contemporary accounts, to be excessively beautiful, but she was short and pleasing. (laughs) I just feel so bad for her. Uh, She just seems like she was just trying her best to make everyone happy, And it just bit her in the neck. But anyway, so Henry was immediately smitten with her and gave her lots of expensive gifts. Uh, He got the marriage with Anna annulled and married her within a couple of weeks afterward. And so then she's queen, and she does her best to be a good queen. So just like Jane, she attempts to do intercessions, and she's successful at it. She is part of the entertainments at court. Uh, She gets along really well with Anna of Cleves. So she didn't get along with Mary very well, who was probably about 10 years older than her new stepmom. But as queen, she does her best to be a good queen. And... Things are going along actually pretty well for her until we have the entering of Thomas Culpepper. Thomas Culpepper was a gentleman of the Privy Chamber for Henry, and he started seeking favors from her. And around the same time, too, Deerum comes back from Ireland and starts bragging about how, well, you know, Kate loves me. Uh, She favors me more than a lot of other people. So she adores me. We have this. We have a history, which, of course, is really bad for her if all of this stuff comes out she had kept it secret from henry and did not tell him of what had happened uh probably because of the fact that the other people who were involved kept it secret themselves and she was following their lead or their instruction and was told that you know if you if henry knows that you were not a virgin when he married you he'll probably divorce you and so she didn't want that to happen and she actually seemed to be really enjoying being a queen So this kind of became a disastrous situation for her. And Culpepper was a jerk. He was a real winner. Uh, He had a sordid past as well. Uh, He apparently had raped the wife of a park keeper. And then killed the dude who tried to bring him to justice. And Henry knew about this. But pardoned him. I just, that just galls me. But, um, so Culpepper started to seek more and more meetings with Catherine, which is when they probably had, uh, physical relations, and so some historians will basically just say that little Catherine was a succubus, or an incubus, I think it's a succubus, where she was just constantly seeking sexual gratification, that she was a slave to her id and a slave to her sex drives, and she would just fuck anything that moved. And you have more of, um, a revisionist and revisionist is not necessarily a bad word when it comes to history approach to her is that, um, and I'm actually looking at the ODNB here, uh, because we do have a letter that is extant from Kate to Culpepper. And originally it's been show used to show that she was totally fine with their relationship, that she was a completely consenting participant. Um, and... They'd been having clandestine meetings for about six months, and she signed the letter, yours for as long as life endures. And so in the ODMB, I love this particular uh, interpretation of this. So it's possible, however, and I'm quoting from this directly, to put a different interpretation upon Catherine's letter, that its emotional tone was fueled less by sexual ardor and more by desperation of a young woman who was seeking to placate an aggressive, dangerous suitor one who, moreover, as a member of the Privy Chamber, had close contact with the King. The promise she mentioned in the letter could have concerned the Durham affair. Culpepper, it may be suggested, had established some form of threatening control over her life, and although he, as he admitted, was seeking sexual satisfaction with her, Catherine was trying to ensure his silence through a misguided attempt at appeasement. The letter makes it clear that she wished for his presence, but never refers to him as her lover or darling. And it expresses a desire for no more than verbal conversation with him. Far from initiating relationships, Catherine's attitude to Culpepper, as with the other men in her life, the king included, can be seen as essentially passive, reactive to their demands. And so this letter then that we have that talks about, you know, like, I desire nothing more than to talk with you, uh, yours as long as life endures, et cetera, et cetera. I agree with this interpretation that she, you know, has finally found something that at least is working for her. She might not necessarily be happy with the marriage because Henry's in his 40s at this point? No, 50s. Right? Can I do math? I really can't do math very well, but I do try very hard. Yeah, so, yeah, Henry's in his 50s at this point in time. And she's a teenager. She is probably not necessarily happy but we don't have any you know source uh, evidentiary that shows that but she's probably not very happy with the marriage but she's happy being queen she is finally being able to make decisions for herself and then all of this happens and so this completely backfires on her and uh so then it did come out of her meetings with Culpepper. It came out of her sexual past with Dearham and Mannix, and uh, they were both executed. Uh, Culpepper was simply beheaded, and Dearham had the traitor's death of uh, hanging, cor- uh, disemboweling, and then uh, beheading. So then Catherine was taken to the tower. She was stripped of her queenship. Uh, Henry had decided retroactively to make it high treason to not disclose any sexual past to the king if you were marrying him. And also it was illegal to keep it secret if you knew. And so it's just like, if Henry actually did love her, then he would totally not have done that. Just like he would have protected Anne Boleyn instead of having her executed. So... Henry retroactively made it a crime for to do the things that she did and uh, just to rub salt in the wound, she when she was transported to the tower, she was taken by barge. So along the Thames River, uh, she was actually she passed under a bridge that had the heads of Deham and Culpepper on spikes. and she was kept there for a few months, actually, I think it was, at least a few weeks uh, before her execution. and when her turn came, She was too weak to make it to the scaffold alone. She actually had to have people help her up to it. And she was beheaded on Tower Green and buried in St. Peter Adventula, just like Anne Boleyn. (sighs) Thus ends the sad, short life of Kate Howard. Five down, I'm the final wife. I saw him to the end of his life. I'm the survivor Catherine Parr. I bet you wanna know how I got this far. So now for a slightly happier story? At least she's not executed. (laughs) Catherine Parr. And I'm doing my best actually kind of going through as we're talking about each of these queens to use the names that they signed on things. And so that's why we have the German Anna for Anne of Cleves, we have Kate for uh, Catherine Howard, and also to be able to differentiate between them. Um, and so Catherine Parr, or Catherine Parr, uh, she signed it as Catherine, uh, was born in, I have this written down, uh, around 1512. And she died in 1548, so after Henry VIII, which is why she's the survived. Uh, she died at the age of 36. And he certainly was not her first husband. Uh, she was the daughter of Maud Parr, who actually did serve uh, Catherine of Aragon years back. And Catherine Parr was named for Catherine of Aragon. Uh, her dad died when she was young, and so she and her two siblings were educated by their mother at home. And her mom was an incredibly uh astute and well-educated woman herself and she did a wonderful job of teaching her children so many varied and in-depth subjects by the time uh, catherine parr was an adult she could speak fluent french latin and italian and she also uh, contracted a tutor to teach her spanish while she was on the throne so her mother did a very good job of instilling a lifelong love of learning in catherine uh, so when she was about 17, her first marriage uh, happened to Edward Burrow. It probably wasn't a, a happy marriage as the father-in-law was kind of a jerk, but the, uh, she and Edward moved to a house that was closer to her mother and so things kind of improved a bit, but then he died fairly quickly. Uh, so then she married John Neville, who was Baron Latimer, three years later. And then here Catherine had her first chance to really be a stepmother. She was stepmother to his two children from a previous marriage and by uh, winter of 1543 she had found a position in princess mary's household they were only a few years apart in age and they got along really well they were both incredibly well educated but yeah so she got along famously with mary and actually i'm quoting here from the birth of a queen uh an essay in that volume called Under the Influence, the Impact of Queenly Book Dedications on Princess Mary by Dr. Valerie Schutte. Uh, and so she talks about actually how um, you know Catherine Parr had uh, two printed books that were dedicated to her. I'm not gonna read the titles of these because these are excessively long. Thank you, Early Modern England. Um, but one of the things that uh, Nicholas Udall uh, had a dedication in his book to Catherine um, which was uh, yeah, before the Gospel of St. John, Udall noted that this particular Gospel was translated by Mary at Catherine's request. And so Catherine and Mary both saw in each other that spark of a very intelligent woman, and so they got along very, very well. And I actually need to read more in that book. I just bought it on sale. It was great. Paul Macmillan had a sale for uh, almost all of their academic books for ten bucks each, which is insane when you know how much academic books actually cost, usually upwards of at least a hundred dollars. So, ten dollars was amazing. But anyway, and so they got along really well, and then her second husband dies, which was very sad, because uh, they actually had gotten along pretty well. He was actually more in uh, conservative in terms of politics and religion, and she as we definitely find out when she's a queen is much more on the side of the reformed faith, but they still got along really well and uh, took care of each other. And, but he died shortly thereafter after she got into Mary's household and she met some time around that and fell in love with Thomas Seymour, who was the older brother of the former queen Jane Seymour. And she wasn't able to marry him. because henry decided that he wanted to marry her instead and so when the queen said the queen when the king says you're going to marry him well you're going to marry him and and so she decided to at least make the best of a bad situation as much as she didn't want to be married to henry and it was very dangerous to be married to henry considering he had just executed two of his wives that she tried to do the most good she could for the reformed faith and when I say Reformed faith, I mean like Lutheranism or uh, Calvinism, kind of both of those are covered under the Protestant sort of angle. Uh, and so she worked very hard to promote uh, publishing of Reformed texts. She worked very hard to get appointments made of Reformed preachers into different uh parishes and dioceses all around England. She also uh, had a really great relationship with all of her stepchildren and actually succeeded where uh, Jane and Catherine Howard had started the process. She finished it of getting Mary and Elizabeth put back into the succession. She wasn't able to get them unbastardized, but she was able to get Henry to acknowledge that, okay, fine. Well, if Edward, you know, dies without heirs, then Mary and Elizabeth can have their turns. Uh, One of the things that was also really cool is that she was a published author. She, uh, and after Henry died, which honestly wasn't that long, they married in... Uh, 1543 and he died in 1547 so it was only a four-year marriage which can seem like forever when you're with someone you don't want to be with and you are in a den of vipers as was Henry's court Uh, but he did die and so then this is how she became known as the one who survived Um, during her time as queen she also uh, was regent which is really interesting to think about because Uh, Henry only bestowed that particular honor on his first and last wives, Catherine of Aragon and Catherine Parr. And so this means that, you know, he went off to go and fight in France, just like he did back in 1513 with Catherine of Aragon. And he left Catherine Parr in charge, and she did just as good a job as Catherine of Aragon did. Although there was no invasion from the Scots at this particular point in time to defend from. So luckily she didn't have to deal with that. So after Henry VIII's death, uh, she secretly marries Thomas Seymour, which angered both uh, Edward and Thomas's older brother, who is the I don't I don't know if he's the Duke of Somerset at this particular point in time, but he is Edward's protector of the realm, and uh, because as the former queen she legally needed to seek his royal permission, but eventually she was able to gain his forgiveness and smooth things over. Uh, We can see that in the fact that she was granted the wardship of uh, Princess Elizabeth, as well as Lady Jane Grey, who were both in line of the succession. And she oversaw their education, just like her mother did hers. Both of these young ladies had had an exemplar education before this, but she continued that and showed them that a woman could just be as well educated as a man and you know she had this measure of independence that she learned from her mother and passed on to both Jane and Elizabeth and Catherine was the closest thing that Elizabeth had to a mother for basically most of her life because uh, you know, her mom was taken from her when before she even turned three years old and that's actually a really sad story too that uh, the little two-year-old Elizabeth after her mother's death uh, you know, her people, you know, her household are moving her around and taking care of her and stuff like that and but they all start referring to her as Lady Elizabeth. And as a two year old, she asks, Yesterday it was Princess Elizabeth. Today it is Lady Elizabeth. What happened? <laughs> So she was a clever kid. Um, Honestly, all of Henry VIII's kids were. But uh, So Catherine was the closest thing that Elizabeth had to a mother. And Elizabeth loved her so much. Um, And soon Catherine was pregnant and gave birth to a daughter who she named Mary. But she died very shortly after childbirth. And then uh, no one's quite sure exactly when the little Mary died. But it was probably fairly quickly after Catherine. And so Catherine her legacy was as an active patron of the arts and of the reformed religion. Uh, she was also the first English woman, known English woman to publish under her own name. She, uh, was an important member of Henry's court, as I said, when she was, uh, uh, when she acted as regent and she lived her life for the most part as much as she was able to on her own terms as much as she wasn't necessarily pleased with her first marriage she got to be the one to kind of help negotiate her second marriage and she got to choose her fourth marriage which was unprecedented for the most part in terms of women being able to choose their own husbands at this point in time and so she just like all of henry VIII's wives was so much more than just his wife. They all had the chance to make their own decisions to make an effect at court and possibly on England in general. And so I'm really excited then to talk about the show six in our next podcast. I think we'll probably finish up this series after that. And I'm still debating actually on what we want to do after this, but I think we want to move on to the Philippa Gregory inspired television series. Uh, We have the White Queen, white princess and spanish princess which will then bring us back into uh getting to talk about catherine of aragon which i'm really excited about (laughs) so that'll start us off then with elizabeth woodville then talk about her daughter elizabeth of york and then uh her daughter-in-law catherine of aragon so thank you so much for listening to this episode of history pop i can't wait to talk about six the musical in our next podcast and uh once again, I'm just so glad that you are coming along with me on this journey to figure out podcasting and also to come through history and talk about history in pop culture. And this is Courtney for History Pop signing off. Stay tuned. Stay well. It's been a pleasure. Take care. This has been written music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a Turtle and Rabbit production.